Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr., and he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling, and I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. One of the most difficult calls I had um, was I, I had uh, to talk. Um, we, we had a person who um, had a noose around their neck. They were standing on a bridge and they had a knife in their hand. Police officers are consistently ranked um, in, in the top professions um, for suicide. Um, that This job has a very significant mental health toll and you need to be taking care of yourself. Um, and your partners. Welcome to Diakonasa Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. And on this episode, you will be able to hear part two of my conversation with Ryan Davies, uh, who is a suicide prevention trainer and consultant. I really appreciate Ryan coming on to the podcast. And on this second part, uh, we have an excellent conversation and talk more about the mental health of police officers than I was expecting. Uh, But it's very good. And Ryan does a great job articulating things about mental health that I think are are helpful to uh, people who are trying to understand police work and how we deal with people who are having mental health uh, problems, and also to police officers who uh, obviously have uh, their mental health taxed at times uh, on the job. But before we get into that, it's time for... To the As most of you know, Cue the Dip stands for Kicking Up the Dust in Pursuit, and each week I pick a winner, someone uh, in law enforcement who gets after it with a good arrest, great work, or quite frankly, anything or anyone uh, is eligible uh, that I pick, because it's my segment. This week's winner is a retired detective, that being retired Ephrata Police Department Detective Brad Ortenzi. Uh, for his leadership of an eight-man team that recently won the Race Across America 2021 uh, in their division. So Brad is the USA Regional Director for Zoe International, which exists to end child trafficking through prevention, rescue, and restoration. 
The first part of their mission is reaching every person by bringing the good news and training followers of Jesus Christ. The second part is to end child trafficking and restoring survivors and at-risk orphans. It's a very cool organization uh, that I recently was able to learn a little bit more about from Brad. And uh, you can learn more about uh, that organization at gozoe.org. That's G-O-Z-O-E.org. So here's the deal. Brad led an eight-man team in a race across America, in the race across America 2021. His teammates included Sam Lapp, Nate Eakin, Alan Fisher, Jonathan Fisher, Matt Lapp, another Alan Fisher, and an Elmer Fisher. They also had a 12-member support team, I believe, if I'm correct. Um, And using the, the mantra, their freedom is our fuel, they did this race to raise money and awareness for the mission of Zoe International uh, but they were also competing, and they and they wanted to win, um, and they did, finishing first in their division at six days and twenty-seven minutes. Uh, listen, this is a grueling race. I was so into this thing, man. I was following it on Facebook. Um, they had like a website that you could follow their times and and uh, at each time station and everything. Man, I was into it. I thought it was super super cool thing. Uh, it's a grueling race where. You are racing 24 hours a day until the finish line. Uh, so there, there are bikers. There are uh, bikers who do it um, solo, which is incredible uh, to read about the, the people that do it solo. But this eight-man team uh, was racing 24 hours a day uh, for those six days and 27 minutes until they won. Uh, there's lots of logistics and support personnel who help make that possible. Uh, The team of eight is broken into four-man teams who basically take 12-hour shifts while the team that's off rests and sleeps. Um, And they faced a lot of obstacles as they rode from California to Maryland, uh, covering over 3,000 miles. Just really incredible. So I salute Brad Ortensi and his team for being this week's Cue the Dip winner and kicking up the dust after this amazing win and, more importantly, the rescue and restoration of child survivors of trafficking. All right, we're going to dive into the second part of my conversation with Ryan Davies. I'll start out with some clips from last week's portion, and then we'll get into this week's part. Did you generally feel police presence was helpful at these mental health calls or a hindrance? Oh, helpful. Most of the time, helpful. I I can pick out uh, maybe a few instances, um, and these officers all all know about them because we we had talks about them after, where maybe they lost their cool um, and it sort of set things back, but that's maybe three or four times. Um, Okay. I can also tell you many more instances where someone saved my neck because I was being... um, stupid or i was i was sticking my neck out where it doesn't belong um and and an officer protected me from from harm um i you know in my other crisis counselors that i worked with um i know a few of them listen to your show um they will all agree that uh police officers uh when they're on scene um they're always very much happy that they are there because they really help the whole crisis negotiation go um a lot more smoothly were you surprised or not surprised generally about how the police you were with engaged with people that were having uh, mental health problems? I think that you know that's a really tough question because now that I've been I did this for so many years, I'm I'm probably very biased because you know the police officers that I worked with were exemplary and they did such wonderful work uh, with, with I call them my people, but with you know with um, people who have mental illness. Um, you know, I was, I would say that I actually was, was not surprised. Um, 
you know, I, I, the, the police officers that I've worked with have, um, you know, always been very calm and patient in most cases, uh, with, 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 um, people who have mental illness and they, you know, I was, you know, one thing that did surprise me was the vulnerability that officers would have with me when we were in the car and they would probably hate that I'm saying this, but, um, <laughs> you know, you know, the, when officers would open up to, up to me about kind of their, their frustrations and their, their trouble with the job, you know, this, and this wasn't part of my role, you know, I wasn't like right. there to be their counselor, but, um, inevitably when someone finds out you work in the mental health field, like you, you're their counselor. <laughs> um, uh, but just the vulnerability that was there in, in, in such a, like kind of a protected world, uh, was, was truly awesome. And I've always felt that that was, it's kind of the coolest part about working in mental health is that people will tell you things that they would not tell even their closest family members. Um, and to have that trust, I think that was what was surprising to me was that it was so freely given um, after I sort of proved my, my um, trustworthiness and, and worth to them. And I think what people actually want is they want, they want to feel safe, but they also want to feel good about it. Yeah. And it's just, it's just not, a, it's not a real expectation. You, you yeah. can't, you can't expect that from the world. Sometimes in order to achieve the things that we need to achieve in society, things will get ugly. And I think that people have a hard time coming to grips with that. Yeah, no, I think it's a very valid point. I think a lot of people want to believe that they somehow can enact reform and things to completely eradicate uh, bad things from happening or evil things from happening. And it's just, it's, it's just not possible. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to do things a certain way and, and lessen that, but you'll never be able to get rid of it. So, you know, and I, I, it, it's just such a valid point in the whole, in the mental health side of things where you see people beating this drum that the police don't know how to deal with mental health, that they shouldn't even be going to mental health calls. And this idea that somehow we're, if if we pull the police out of it, no one will ever die again um, in the mental, like that's either suffering from mental health or, or mental health professionals that go to help them, they'll be okay because they know how to handle the situation. And I just, you know, I think of the most recent shooting in Lancaster City, um, you know, there's no, there was nothing a mental health professional going to that call was not going to be able to solve that problem and would have been stabbed um, and possibly stabbed to death. Like, I mean, maybe you disagree with me on that, but I don't, I don't know how anyone uh, other than a police officer would have been able to handle that without being injured and or killed. I, I can tell you as a crisis interventionist, I can tell you as someone who um, teaches this training about suicide prevention, about de-escalation skills, um, I, I give these trainings every couple months to, to different providers and, and different um, departments. Um, specifically about the shooting that you're referencing, there is absolutely nothing that could be done in that moment. Are there things that could have been done prior to that? Yes. If, if we wanted to get into the actual details of, of what led up to that incident mm -hmm. and why that individual was even there. Um, sure. There are things that the mental health system. And even in fact, I would say the legal system failed um, that individual. However, the, the officer there, um, what option was there? Right. I, I mean, I, how many seconds was it that it happened? I, I mean, yeah, I don't even know. I mean, Maybe a couple was, seconds. Yeah, it was incredibly fast. 
Yeah, maybe a couple seconds. So me as a as a as a crisis interventionist, I, I have to take time to build rapport with someone. I have to find out what their their concerns are, what their problems are. I have to um, empathize with them. I have to partner with them. I, I mean, I I can tell you, I I would have been hurt, and I know the type of person that I am, and the type of person that I I was when I was in that role, and I would have probably been somewhere that I I shouldn't have been, and I probably I, I may have gotten that officer um, in 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 a lot of hot water because I, I would have been hurt. Um, now I'm not saying that we should not have crisis interventionists in every police department in America. I think we should. Um, and I think that it's a valuable thing to have. However, we also need to know their limitations, just like we need to know the limitations of police officers. They're not counselors. They're not psychologists. They're not psychiatrists. They don't go to school for this. It's not their role. Um, right. and, and to expect that from them is I think ridiculous. And even to go back to the, um, like if someone, let's say someone calls 911, they say, oh, I'm feeling suicidal. If crisis is going to, if, if crisis intervention in its current system, and I can only speak for Lancaster County, but in its current system, that crisis counselor is not even going to get to that person for at the minimum 30 to 45 minutes. And that's, I mean, that's really, that's me saying something heroic time. Like that's the best we're going to get. Okay. Whereas, whereas a police officer, like city police officer, they're stationed all throughout the city. They can be there in five minutes, two minutes. Uh, they're they're going to be able to make the most impact right now in, in making sure that scene is safe and making sure that situation is safe. Right. Um, yeah. And it's a type of situation too that, um, you know, really the police, in my opinion, should be going to, even if a mental health professional is going to it, just to help with that safety factor because we can't just be if you're talking to someone who's suicidal and, and, you know, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I always felt like if I was talking to someone who was suicidal, they were only one step away from being homicidal because if they were really, um, you know, bent on, uh, wanting to die, me as a police officer, uh, provided an opportunity to them for them to do something to, to force my hand and, and, and unfortunately make that happen for them. And, and, would you agree with that, or do you generally feel like that's two separate uh, roads that rarely intersect? It, you know, it's tough. I think that I think that there are calls that um, a crisis interventionist or um, you know a, a mental health worker can handle, and they, they actually they do handle right. So, right. crisis intervention in Lancaster County takes um, calls. You know, every every day. I mean, hundreds of calls. Um, you know, weekly. Um, and they go out and they handle most of those. I would say without a police presence. However, however, if at any point that scene is unsafe, or let's say they get a call and someone's even even being suspicious of acting violent, they will not go without a police officer. That is right. policy. You do not go to an unsafe scene without a police officer. I, now, I will say most mental health calls do not involve someone who is actively suicidal. Most mental health calls involve, you know, a concerned family member or friend, um, or maybe uh, you know someone posted some vague suicidal messages on something like Facebook or you know something like that. Um, however, those calls where where uh, a person is actively suicidal or actively homicidal, you need a police officer there. Listen, I, I I can go and I can use what I call my verbal judo, my my like you know my mental jujitsu as right. much as as much as I can. But at a certain point, like I'm not trained to wrestle a knife out of somebody's hand. Like I'm not trained, I, I'm not trained to prevent someone from from committing physical violence that's not i i've never i've never had the skills to do that i i don't i don't know what i'm doing i don't carry a weapon i don't i can't even vouchsafe my own safety um so 
you know, I think police officers are absolutely needed on, on those calls, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, uh, what would be, um, I, I appreciate the balance that you bring to this conversation because I feel like I've talked to some, you know, people, um, in the mental health crisis intervention field who definitely aren't this balanced, um, and definitely would, uh, maybe lean towards more like the police shouldn't be involved in this stuff at all. Um, but so the balance you bring to it, I think is, is good. I think you're right. Right. So in a perfect world, police officers should not have to be involved in, in, in mental health treatment or medical treatment in a perfect world. Absolutely. In a perfect world, I think, um, we would have people who had access to, to all the services they could possibly want, and they would be able to utilize those services. And I think that is the world that we really need to build to is making sure that the social systems are in place to help people and prevent the crises before they happen. However, when the crisis does happen, you you need a police officer there to to keep keep at least the scene safe at the minimum and to keep me safe yeah. um i i there have been many instances where myself and other crisis counselors have been very close to being injured or who have been injured um because you know we we get too brazen we kind of forget the fact that we are vulnerable um I think that the balance is needed. Now, I, I want to go back. I would say um, something that I want to kind of set the record straight on is people who are suicidal are not inherently violent. Um, if someone is actively suicidal, it's not as so simple as them just changing that and now all of a sudden they're going to hurt someone else. Most people who are suicidal are vulnerable. Um, they feel that they're disconnected from the world around them. You know, all the all the research and the studies that we've done on suicide show us that that really most people have grappled with this topic in one way or another throughout our entire lives. I will say on your recording that I have at some point in my life. You know, Albert Camus, famous French existentialist philosopher, he says that suicide is the primary question of all being. We have to determine whether or not life is worth living. That's the most important thing that we have to do. Um, I think that we need to normalize suicidal thought so that way more people talk about it. Um, I, I just, I just want to kind of say that, you know, it's not just because someone's suicidal does not mean that they're going to hurt you or that they're violent. Do some of those individuals become violent? Yes. Um, and you'll hear about it every time it happens in the news. Right. Um, but you know, it's, I think it's important that we start talking more about suicide and bring it into kind of the public sphere, which we've been doing, uh, to, to, to everyone's credit, but, I just, you know, I really think we need to do a better job. Yeah, yeah. And no, I appreciate you you saying that and, and being vulnerable with that. Um, because, yeah, I mean, obviously on, on the police department, you know, in the 20 years I was there, uh, you know, three officers that I personally knew um, committed suicide. And so, and it's also, I mean, it's it's unfortunately way too prevalent within law enforcement. Um, and, and you had touched on like the mental health, uh, of police officers and how oftentimes they would open up and, and, and share things with you. Um, what, what kind of, was, was, was there anything surprising about those conversations and, um, the mental health of, of police officers, sure. like working in a police department and being, 
you know, directly close to, to officers and having some of them open up and talk to you, anything surprised you about their mental health and, and how good or poor, uh, it was, <laughs> you know, I, I will say that it's, it's 100% a fact, um, that police officers are more likely to die by suicide than they are to die, um, in the line of duty. That's correct. Um, I, I would say that, and it's, you know, it makes sense, right? So police officers, um, daily are exposed to something that we call vicarious trauma. What vicarious trauma means is you're sort of a passenger to other people's trauma. It's something that we experience, um, in a, uh, a less definitive sense, um, in the medical and mental health community. Um, you, if you're exposed to that much vicarious trauma day in and day out, if you're responding, I can think of, you know what? I, I can remember every single call where things did not go poorly. I can remember every single call that ended in a suicide. Um, you know, I, I still think about often, often all the time about this, this 18 year old kid who we found slumped in his backyard because he shot himself and there was a suicide note, but we didn't find it until he moved the body because it was under him. And I will never forget going out and talking to his family and explaining to them, you know, what happened, what the process is, um, just kind of like being an ear for them. And this is something that police officers are exposed to every day of their lives. And we, we need to kind of normalize talking about the mental health injustice that happens among police officers. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, I'm passionate about. And I think that, uh, we need to be able, we need to do a much better job at, because you're right. You know, one of those officers that we lost to suicide was a friend, was a friend before I even joined the, the, um, the, the, the crisis community there, even before I, I started sitting on the desk. Um, and, uh, it's that, that loss really will, will sit with me for the rest of my life. And I, I think that we, and I myself included need, need to do much better at making sure that the wellness um, and the health of police officers is looked after. And I just said all that and I already forget your, your question. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That, that answered the question. I think my follow-up to, to that question would be, you know, as someone who's worked in the field, what would you, what do you think is some of the most important things um, police officers could do? Like for, for me personally, I, for me, it was always important to uh, talk about stuff. Like I, I, um, and and some guys do not agree with me on this um, that I work with. Uh, you know, I I was always very open um, with with my wife Lauren about uh, things that were going on. I maybe not all the nitty gritty details, but I I told her pretty much everything because for me talking about it was one of the biggest things I felt like I needed to do just to, you know, be able to process it some way and just get it out of me. Would you think that is a important thing to do? And, um, if not, what, what things would you suggest to, to the, to the officers to, to kind of help them, um, manage the stress of the job? I think that's a great start. I think that being able to be open and talk about those things is, is really the first step to kind of grappling with them. You know, it's, it's, you, you can keep things inside for only so long, um, before they bubble over. Um, and I guarantee you to all the people who listen to this show, to all the people who will ever listen to this, please understand that you can keep it inside for now. You can keep it inside maybe this month or this year or next year, or even for a decade. But by the time that you reach your 25 years, I guarantee you 
some of those things will bubble over and it will affect other aspects of your life. So you have to learn to talk about it and deal with it now. That's, that's the, the number one thing that I can say to police officers to kind of help deal with this vicarious trauma is to talk about it. Um, find someone that you can confide in, someone that you can trust, um, someone that you can share these things without feeling guilt. And I would suspect that there are a lot of officers out there who, who hear your story about talking to your wife about these things and they think, oh, I can never say that. If I said that to my wife, she would just worry or um, she would be upset or she would be concerned that you know, I'm going to get hurt or something. Um, and, but it's, that's okay. You have to find your person who you can be vulnerable with. And I hate right. to use the hippie word vulnerable around a bunch of cops, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it, it is, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be able to share these things. Um, first and foremost, secondly, it's okay to talk about suicide. It's okay to talk about your feelings. It's okay. If you're feeling suicidal, you have to say something. Um, maybe, maybe you're afraid to tell your sergeant, maybe you're afraid to tell your partner because you're worried that they're going to lose their trust in you or something. That's fair. That's okay. It's okay to have those feelings. What's not okay is to then use that to not tell somebody. You have to tell somebody. One thing I can say to other police officers, maybe people who haven't grappled with these things yet or, or ever, um, is check on your partners. It's okay to ask them. You know, one thing I, 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 I hear from people all the time, every time I do a training, I hear the same thing is, well, you know, I'm afraid to talk to people about suicide because, you know, maybe they're not suicidal. And if I ask them about it, then, uh, you know, I'm going to put the idea in, in their head. That is not going to happen ever, 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 ever. It's not like you're going to magically um, teach someone that that suicide exists. We all know it's there. It's the big elephant in the room. Um, especially police officers, if they deal with it every, every, all, I mean, all the time you deal with it on the job. Um, so you, if you, you have a concern, you say something, if you, if you think that someone's going through a bad time, don't speak in uncertain terms. If you're concerned that someone is feeling suicidal, if you're, if you're concerned that your partner is feeling suicidal, you ask them, Hey man, that was a really tough call or Hey, like I, if I would have went through that, I, trust me, I, I would have some feelings too. Are you safe? Are you okay? Are you feeling suicidal? You can tell me it's okay. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's what I would say is check on your partners, check on your friends, but also know, and this is something that I had to learn was let's say you, you are someone who has experienced a suicide and I'm sure most police officers listening to this have, have lost a friend or a partner or um, someone else in the department to suicide. It's not your fault. Um, listen, I, I'm a crisis counselor. My, my job is to prevent suicide. You know, it's, it's what I've dedicated my entire life to. And I lost my friend in, in the police department to suicide. And I talked to that person maybe a week before it happened. And mm -hmm. it took me a very long time to, to let myself free of that. It, 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 you need to know that it's, it's never your fault. You can prevent suicide, but it is, it is never going to be your fault if someone does complete suicide. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know uh, who you're talking about. Um, Mark Aaron and, and he was, um, his name has come up on the podcast before and, and he was a friend of mine and I talked to him uh, a couple days before um, he, he killed himself. And, and that was tough because 
when I spoke to him, it was the happiest I had seen him in a long time. And so what that tells me is he probably had already made up his mind by then. And um, yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't pick up on it. Um, And uh, I, I don't, I've never blamed myself for it. I've never, you know, felt badly about that. I don't think I've really processed that one very well because uh, I was I was pretty upset about that and and still still am. Um, but yeah, it's just so important to you know. I know in 2020 um, with some of the stuff we were going through as a police department and officers on the unit I was in charge of. You know, I I was checking in with my guys and asking them and making sure they were okay. Um, because, you know, the, the pressure and the stress sometimes of the job is just, uh, astronomical. And, uh, so, you know, supervisors out there definitely need to be keeping tabs on their people. And if they start seeing, seeing that person do things that they don't normally do, whether it's bad behavior or, or just, uh, something that isn't normal, that's, those are, those are key times where you need to, you know, check in with that person and make sure they're okay. Absolutely. And, you know, some of, some of the big risk factors that we look out for, people who experience trauma, people who have big losses in their lives, um, you know, people who experience a divorce, um, uh, people who have um, uh, an act of violence committed upon them, or maybe they commit an act of violence. Um, th- these are all uh, big risk factors for suicide. And unfortunately, these are things that a police officers are subjected to pretty frequently. Um, and you know, that's, these are perfect moments where especially a sergeant, a lieutenant, a captain, whoever, all the way up the chain can step in and, and talk to a, an officer and, and make sure that they're okay. Um, and not only is it making sure that someone is okay, but it's getting them connected with, with some sort of support. Um, it's, you know, it's not just saying, Hey, are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. All right. And then that's the end of it. It's, it's somehow getting them connected with some sort of support, you know, as Lancaster City Police Department in Lancaster County, New York County, we have a program called SISM, Crit- Critical Incident Stress Management. Um, and this is where, uh, police officer peers and trained mental health workers will come the day after, or maybe two days later after a critical incident, and they will have a little round table and they will talk to everyone involved, um, and allow them to kind of debrief. And we found that to be so, so successful, um, in, in treating the vicarious trauma of jobs, like being a police officer or um, a paramedic or a firefighter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, the, the big things to when when you're concerned uh, about suicide, the first thing that you can do is simply ask and be direct. Are you feeling suicidal? And then how can I support you in this? How can we make sure that you're safe? Yeah, yeah. I think that's so. I think that's so huge that that be direct and ask. It feels uncomfortable to ask it. Um, I've I personally have asked it to people, um, and it it is it is a little uncomfortable to ask someone, are you okay, do you feel like hurting yourself? Um, are you suicidal? It's, it's, those are like loaded. It feels like a very loaded statement or question to ask, but you, you have to kind of not give that wiggle room when you ask that question um, and then really gauge the response you get. But generally, if you ask a direct question like that, people are willing to speak to you about what is going on because they realize if you're asking a question like that, you're already picking up on something um, and that you genuinely care about them. And, you know, I think that even goes, you know, for, for mental health calls I went on. Like, I, I um, you know, I, I was part of our, our church's safety team 
And, and uh, we would have people that would come into the church that obviously had mental health problems, and I would go up to them and talk to them and just ask them directly, you know, um, do you do you talk to every do you talk to someone every week? What medications are you on? And people would look at me like, I can't believe you just asked that person that. And I'm like, listen, people, if you ask them direct questions like that, they're going to tell you because people, gen- like, first of all, people like to talk about themselves, and second of all, if you show that you care about what's going on in their life, they're generally gonna uh, generally gonna tell you the truth about that situation and 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 what medications they are taking and who they do talk to every week and that sort of thing. And then you can kind of gauge uh, what you're really dealing with. Absolutely. No, I, I could not have said it better myself here, here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you talked, uh, you did talk about one call that you were on uh, the guy who lunged with the knife and you had the ladder and everything. Do you think that was the most challenging mental health call you ever, you ever went on with the Lancaster city police department or ever, or, are there others out there that really stick out in your mind that are, are really ingrained in your mind? You know, I, I would say uh, the most most challenging calls that, that I've had are all ones where I was unsuccessful in, in my mm-hmm. job. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not going to recount those, but um, I will say, you know, one of the most difficult calls I had um, was I, I had uh, to talk um we we had a person who um, had a noose around their neck. They were standing on a bridge and they had a knife in their hand. So we couldn't get near them because they had this knife in their hand. And then also it was very easy for them to sort of just like sway off the side and um, they would hang themselves. So we're trying to yell across to this person because it's very, very big distance between um, them and us. And we're trying to talk to them. And I, I had actually two different police departments there. And I had the fire department there with the big crane ladder truck or whatever they call it. I'm sure that if they're listening, they'll be upset because I don't know the technical <laughs> name for their precious fire truck. But, um, you know, I, so we have all this happening and then all of a sudden, of course, and police officers will be all very, very much all too, too familiar with this. We have this crowd that gathers well, and obviously whenever a crowd gathers, everyone has an idea. Everyone has to somehow be involved and, you know, everyone has to have their own opinion as to what should happen. So, you know, I get all these people who are crowding and they're shouting and they're yelling and they're, you know, they're, they have their cameras out and they're, you know, and then even I have this crowd building on this, this, this kind of hill, um, on the other side of this bridge and this, this, this person that we're trying to, to deescalate and, and bring to safety is, is starting to freak out. They're like, you, Oh, you put these people over there. You know, you, you know, you guys are, 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 are there to, to kind of hurt me. And he was very paranoid. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the police officers that I were with, I, you know, it was wonderful because as I'm trying to do this de-escalation, my crisis intervention partner um, is kind of directing them like, hey, this is what we need. Can you get rid of those people? Can you make sure that these people are quiet? And they, they were so wonderful. Like they made sure that the scene was as it should be so that this de-escalation could take place. And actually, um, the police officer that was there, I think he received a, an award for this, if, I, if I'm honest. Uh, uh, so it's I I can't I am not allowed the county will not allow me to get in in a, in a bucket ladder whatever they call it yeah. um, and then go and and try and grab somebody okay. if I did that I'd get fired um, <laughs> so the 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 police one of the police officers that was there gets in this truck and we convince this person like hey we have um, you know your significant other on the phone let me can we get you the phone and this was my kind of this was my ploy to get someone close to this person so that when the time could happen we could grab them up and make sure they were safe. 
So the police officer gets in the bucket and goes over, and he's over there for an hour. I mean, this whole whole situation took four hours. I remember specifically because I was eaten alive on this bridge by mosquitoes. Yeah. Um, and uh, the police officer eventually was, we were able to distract this guy, and the police officer just grabbed him up and pulled him into the truck. And the guy started crying, and uh, we, we got him over, and we started talking to him in the back of an ambulance, and he was safe. Um, I would say that was probably one of the most like technically difficult challenges right. uh, or, or calls that I had. Absolutely. And I was so, so grateful for all the police officer support and firefighter support, you know, the, the one time a year that they actually work. Um, uh, it was, it was great to have them out there. <laughs> oh, man. I, I think it's hilarious how you're going after firefighters. Uh, I love it. They're gonna um, this. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, and that is taxing. To, to be doing that and dealing with that for like four hours, that is exhausting. Like you're after a call like that, you are exhausted. Oh yeah. We went and got Rita's ice cream afterward. I was yeah. like, we're not going back to write this note. We're, we're going to go get ice cream. I, we right. just, we earned this ice cream. Right. right. <laughs> it is taxing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's mentally exhausting. Yeah. So in, in, in doing what you did, how did you maintain your mental health and how did you, like what were those things that you did to to uh yeah keep yourself healthy uh as you were like doing these types of things and and dealing with people in these situations on a regular basis even possibly even more regular basis than police officers one thing that was really helpful helpful to me um was was something that I sort of um kind of created for myself was I found that the more and more I did it, the more and more I would go home and I would bring work home with me. And it's really hard not to do, right? Because you're exposed to these really high energy traumatic situations. It's really hard not to go to sleep with those thoughts in your head. And this is going to sound really silly, but this works. I promise you this works. And what I did was, is on my drive home, there was an overpass, the 30 bridge, right? And I would drive under this, as I was getting close to this, this overpass, um, I would think about all the things that happened that day, all the, all the kind of crap that I had to deal with. And then as I would go under the overpass, I would visualize those thoughts just melting away. And the visualization is important. I would literally sit there and in my head, I would see them disappear. And then as I went through the other side of the bridge, I let them go. And I was successful in doing that maybe 40% of the time, maybe 50% of the time by the end of my career. But um, it, that was probably the most, I know it sounds stupid, but that was the most significant thing that I did to make sure that I was well. Uh, another thing that I did, um, I saw a therapist. And I, you know, I, I saw somebody because, especially after Mark died, um, I, I, needed, I needed some help. Um, and the, the therapist that I saw was truly wonderful and, uh, gave me kind of a safe place. I hate that I just use the word safe place, but he gave me a safe place, um, to, uh, to kind of talk through, um, those feelings, uh, especially the job, because it's, it's the same for police officers, right? You experience this. And then five minutes later, you're expected to go do it again. Right. It's, it's not like you get a break. It's not like you can be like, Hey, I'm going to sheets for a coffee. Like, no, whatever call comes in, you go. If right. you're working, like that's it. You don't get a break. So another big thing that's important is taking those breaks, is recognizing. And I know, I know you Lancaster City guys, you guys get tons of vacation time, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I knew officers who would take off like a month at a time, okay? You have to use that time wisely. If, yeah. you, if you have a week off or two weeks off from work, you need to be in, 
you need to have intention with which you use it. Don't just go home and sit on the couch. That's okay. You want to go home, sit on the couch. That's fine. But do it with intention. Do it. Do something for yourself. Make sure that you have a life outside of your job. So for me as a crisis counselor, and I'm sure it's the same for a lot of police officers, that job becomes your life. It becomes like the very fabric of your being. It becomes everything. And that's not really healthy. You, right. need, you need to have a lot of facets of your life so that when one is not going so well, you can rely on the others. Um, and, and that is one thing that I also got good at doing. I'm, I'm an avid motorcyclist. I love riding a motorcycle. I play music. Um, you know, I, I've gotten really involved with my education. And when things weren't going so well or I needed some time, I could invest time into these other things. Um, and I would really, I would really push your listeners to do the same is, you know, find something that you like and enjoy and use your intention to, to actually take time to do it and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's good. I always told new guys coming on the job. Don't, don't just hang out with other cops. Keep your friends outside the job that are normal. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, don't, you know, don't I don't use the job as your identity. You're more than a police officer. You know, they're they're don't identify yourself as just a police officer. Um, because one day you won't be a police officer. And if you only identify yourself as a police officer, that's gonna be a really difficult thing when you leave uh to no longer have. So Absolutely. I think those are, are good points. Um well in closing, funniest memory. Well, I actually before before I ask you this question, I did want to ask you, did you I mean we kind of were all over the map. We kind of went back and forth um uh which is what I love about these episodes because you you generally go in with a a uh, outline, a map of what your the questions you're going to ask and where you're going to go and then you kind of go all over the place. But was there anything that you uh, wanted to get across during this episode or talk about that I didn't really touch on and, and didn't give you a chance to touch on. Sure. And, you know, we talked about this a lot, but I just want to reiterate, um, if you're a police officer and uh, you hear this, please, please make sure that you are okay. Make sure that you're checking in on not only yourself, but your partners. Your job is a hard one. You know, police officers are consistently ranked um, in, in the top professions um, for suicide. Um, that this job has a very significant mental health toll and you need to be taking care of yourself, um, and your partners. And sometimes it's just you. Sometimes it's just you that you have the energy to take care of. And that's totally okay. That's perfectly fine. Um, but you need to be talking to someone about this stuff. Um, if you're ever feeling suicidal, um, you do not have to call 911, I'm sure, you know, uh, but if you're ever feeling suicidal, you, you need to talk to somebody. We cannot keep losing police officers like this. It's not okay. You know, this it's an epidemic and it's something that we need to address. And it's the same with veterans. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, we were talking about this previously, like, you know, I would say it's that the worlds are very similar. Um, you know, there are so much that's being expected of police officers today. You know, we have all these people who they think that just because their cell phone has a camera that they somehow have a three-year JD, like a law degree. Um, it's like the, the expectations are astronomical. And, right. you know, I just, I just hope that 
the police officers out there who are listening to this are are checking in on themselves and they're getting help if they need it. Cause I, I promise you it is out there. You just have to find it. Yeah. Well, and I glad, I'm glad you said that because uh, recently I was just uh, um, a friend of mine on the police department shared with me a, a uh, organization called cop line. And actually when you were talking, it reminded me of this organization. I'm going to put a link to it in the comments for this episode. Um, and, and it's a, it's basically a completely anonymous, um, phone number that police officers can call. They can stay completely anonymous, um, and they can talk to a retired police officer or, or active police officer too. I think they have both active and retired police officers that will answer the phone. No one answers the phone except the police officer, um, who go through training on talking and, and, um, you know, just helping you out and who can point you to other resources should you want. If you just want to call and talk for an hour or two, um, they will listen to you and talk to you. Um, and then if you want more resources, my understanding is they they can guide you to other resources. So I just started looking into this organization. It looks pretty, pretty decent. And uh, so I'll, I'll put a link uh, to that organization in the comments for this episode out there. Um, yeah, I'm I'm familiar with that 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 organization. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Okay. You should absolutely use it if need be. And I can and I can tell you that as someone who staffed a similar crisis line. So prior to me coming to the police department, I worked at our our desk, um, just you know taking phone calls from people in the community who were suicidal. Well, like that's our life. That's what we that's what we're trained to do. That's what we love to do. We want to talk to you. And most of the time, we are just sitting there playing board games. And I'm being very serious. We are just sitting there playing board games waiting for the phone to ring because we are waiting for someone who who needs someone to talk to and that's what yeah. we're there for so please do not hesitate to call out and ask we are we are literally waiting just to talk to you yeah awesome well i think it's cool i i didn't expect the this conversation to get so much into the mental health of police officers um i had a couple <laughs> questions in that but no i think it's really good because it is something uh you know something towards the end of my career, I was, you know, especially the last year, uh, very concerned about, you know, um, some of those, uh, that I was working with. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was completely pegged myself. Um, and I was, I was not having, not doing well, but, um, you know, a lot of these things that we talked about are just so important and, and, um, you know, if, if it, you know, can help one person, I, you know, I think it would be, uh, great. Um, so, all right. Funniest memory. Cause it's been a heavy show. It's been a heavy, <laughs> heavy episode, but funniest memory or event you ever witnessed when you were assigned to the police department. Oh man. Okay. Give me a second. I gotta think about this funniest memory or event. And maybe I'll, I can broaden it. I can broaden it to just just your your career with Lancaster Behavioral Health too, if you want. You would not. I mean, maybe as police officer, I'm sure you would imagine actually the 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 things that you see, hear, and smell, <laughs> doing what we do. Um, okay, I've got it. I've you know what? I've got a very funny event, and I'm sure um, most people will find this funny. And if my partner at the time is listening, he will not find this funny and I don't even <laughs> care. So my, you know, I was, this is like my twilight 
with my career there, I was already set to start a PA school at Pitt and I was, you know, kind of getting, I was winding down. It was maybe a month or two to go. Uh, we're going lights and sirens to uh, um, what was called in as a cardiac arrest. It was just this crappy nursing home that didn't know how to see a seizure. This person was perfectly fine. But anyway, we're going lights and sirens and we're going lights and sirens. And uh, I, I had this phrase I would always say, um, and I'm sure everyone I've rode with hated it, but anytime we would go lights and sirens, I would look over and go, hey, what time is it? They go, what do you mean? I go, game time. Um, so <laughs> I, I look, I look, I'm at so my, glad you never rode with me. I know. I know. I'm the worst. So I, I look at my partner and I go, Hey, what time is it? Game time. And then literally a second later, we T-bone another officer who is going lights and sirens to the scene. And for the record, this, this officer was a rookie at the time and, 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 you know, blew the red light, but whatever, whatever. We T-bone them, and it's it's on camera. You can you can see it now in the uh, in the history of uh, the Lancaster City Police Department that you hear me go, "Hey, what time is it? Game time!" And then you hear me man scream because we hit this car. <laughs> That's probably the funniest thing I can think of. It's funny now because no one was uh, seriously injured, but yeah, I everyone was fine. Everyone I was fine. actually remember that call, and as a supervisor, I was like, "Why were we going lights and sirens to a?" medical facility yeah where they should have way more expertise than we do to help the help the person so i honestly do not remember who that officer was and if that officer is listening to this episode please do not be offended (laughs) i really hope they hear this (laughs) but but i do i i remember i i do not remember who the officer was but i do remember the call and i remember thinking why were we going lights and sirens to that if i was the supervisor i would uh, yeah i just wish i would have had a cooler catchphrase that i could have yelled (laughs) prior to that i just i don't know oh man yeah it's it's funny stuff it's funny stuff it really Um, is so well, uh, Ryan, really appreciate you coming on. Really appreciate you talking, uh, being vulnerable, and uh, just just uh, sharing some things that I think can can help police officers. And um, you know, I think you know, obviously, my faith uh, is really important to me and has helped me a lot uh, throughout throughout my career. And uh, um, you know, that's always one thing I include. Uh, in these episodes and these types of episodes too is absolutely you know everyone everyone's at a different different place but um i think that can be an important thing for people too uh you know and uh so but yeah i appreciate everything you shared and uh just uh just coming on because i know you're a super busy guy (laughs) uh you're you're you said you graduate in december yeah i graduate in december i'm i am very much excited it's been a very long year and a half right now i'm seeing patients which is really awesome but it's exhausting yeah well congratulations and i appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule um and and schooling and uh all the i always forget what it's called i always want to say internship and i know that's not right residency residency um so i appreciate you taking time to uh to come on and, and talk to me thank you Well, thank you for having me. I'm really thankful Ryan agreed to come on. I was surprised how our conversation veered into the mental health of police officers as much as it did, Uh, but I'm glad it did so. Many officers I know definitely feel the toll of this job on their mental health. Some internalize it, some self-medicate, some manage it well but still feel the effects, and some tragically... Uh, commit suicide. 
after struggling for many years. Uh, we talked about one of my friends who did just that, uh, Mark Aaron. It's not lost on me uh, the significance of having this episode drop so close to the anniversary of his death, uh, that being June 23rd, 2018, just over three years ago. I did not try to do that, uh, but I don't believe it's a mere coincidence. To be completely honest with you, I did not readily remember June 23rd was the date of his death. I've tried to forget that day uh, because it was, a, it was a really bad one. I was working an overtime assignment that day, and due to radio traffic, I knew something bad had happened, mostly because there was a lot of chatter on the radio, but no details. You know, officers asking for assistance type things and uh, asking other uh, people and supervisors to call them ASAP. Uh, but then my phone rang, and when I saw that it was the patrol captain calling me, I knew it was just going to be, you know, one of those calls. Uh, she told me that Mark was gone and I was needed at the scene. Uh, to relieve those uh, who found him. Some officers uh, that were there were crying. Others were just super somber and trying to do their job. And I remember standing on his porch. I refused to go in, but I could still see too much and more than I wanted to uh, through the front door. It was a very bad day. Um, Mark had a wicked sense of humor. Uh, He was on my shift when I first came on the job. He was a very knowledgeable and capable officer. He was super generous. Uh, He and I, along with another officer on our shift, uh, we would go on three or four day backpacking trips and Mark, without fail, on every one of those trips would bring a gift uh, for us on those trips. Just a super generous guy um, and, and a good friend. So I don't know all the details on why he took his life. I know stuff on the job on him. I know that he had some stuff going on in his personal life. Uh, But more officers die from suicide each year than are killed in the line of duty. Jenna Hilliard uh, recently did an article uh, in September 2019 on the website addictioncenter.com, and she wrote that on average, police officers witness 188 critical incidents in their careers and are five times more likely to suffer from PTSD and depression than the civilian population. Here are some of my thoughts on trauma and all the things it brings, like depression, anxiety, stress, etc. Um, and obviously, my 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 biblical, uh, my faith background uh, play into these thoughts. But trauma does several things: it isolates you. Uh, you feel that no one understands what you've been through, and it turns you inward. Uh, secondly, it can feed our pride. And just bear with me on this, and and listen because it isolates you and it makes you feel that your experiences have not been shared by others or by very few. It makes you think you may have some special knowledge that no one else has or very few can understand. And then lastly, if we believe those things or, or and we entertain them, we begin to lose hope. Because it isolates us and makes us feel like no one can understand, it begins to remove all hope. The trauma begins to become our identity. And if allowed, it colors everything we observe, everything we say, everything we do, everything we see. Think about some of the movies we watch, the cop movies. You have the quote-unquote hero of the movie who's been, who's seen a lot, he's been through a lot. He may be a jerk to every single person around him, but that's okay. He's been through so much. He may drink a lot. He may actually drink way too much. And there's always, there always seems to be that scene where he's getting plastered alone in his home and having flashbacks. But this type of behavior is almost glorified or at least accepted and understood because, quote unquote, the hero 
knows more than others. He's seen more and, and experienced more, and because of that, he's better than those around him. But in reality, the enemy is using that trauma to trap us. It is much easier to wallow in the trauma and pain of past experience than work hard and ask God to help you believe the word and what it says, and to ask God to help us forgive. It's much easier to be lazy and hold on to our feelings and promote our feelings and believe our feelings than work to bring them under the subjection of the Word of God. Much easier to become comfortable in our own feelings and experiences instead of claiming the Word of God as truth and not our feelings. I'm not saying this to be critical of those who have had trauma in their life. Please hear me. I'm not saying that this was Mark's story. I'm saying this is actually my story. I've felt many of these things and I've dealt with many of these things. I still do some days. It's a constant battle to not be driven by my own feelings and emotions, a constant battle to not be a slave to them or controlled by them, a constant battle for me as a Christian to bring those feelings and emotions before the Lord and ask Him to help me to be subject to His Word and not how I feel, a constant battle to forgive people who have wronged me, forgive people who have caused trauma in my life instead of holding on to that and trying to obtain something from other people, or have people owe me something. Left unchecked, trauma can lead to a victim mentality. Uh, Trauma will cause you to look inward, and it can quickly become about you. It stokes a victim mentality. For example, let's say a person experienced severe abuse at the hands of their father. Because of the trauma from that, that person then believes and feels that no man can ever be trusted again. That person views all men a certain way and feels that all men are the same. That person believes that since they were treated a certain way, they have a right to feel and believe whatever they wish because their experience proves it. They deserve it. They don't feel like they can talk about it with anyone. It becomes a secret part of them, and it's easier to wallow in it because it's comfortable. It's who, it's what they know. As they wallow, they begin to self-medicate maybe. Maybe it's drugs or alcohol or sex or anything. You see the pattern. Isolate, look inward, no one gets you, lose hope. The trauma begins to define them. It begins to define us. It's all they are. Isn't that a problem in the world today as many are identifying themselves and defining themselves by all kinds of things like preferred gender or by sexual orientation? or by skin color, or by politics, or by certain camps or beliefs, or even by physical sickness, and yes, even defining themselves by the trauma they've been through. Do you or I identify ourselves based on any of these? Do you or I believe we are owed something because of what we've been through? Do you believe that other people need to acquiesce to you simply because of how you define yourself? See, if we identify ourselves as created by God, and if you're a believer as, a ch- as children of God, then it's not about what we think we deserve because we quickly see what we actually deserve in the eyes of a perfect and holy God. We can begin to operate out of love for our Father and our Savior instead of out of love for ourselves. We begin to understand that our trauma should not cause others to treat us differently or quote-unquote better in our own eyes, but we see clearly how we have been treated by our God, His slowness to anger, His grace, and His mercy. And then we begin to see that many times the trauma and the pain we are going through is to teach us and not to have others bow to us. It may be teaching us to forgive, teaching us to have self-control, teaching us to be slow to anger ourselves. We begin to acquiesce to God 
and seek to lift his name higher than ourselves. See, trauma seeks to lift us higher. It's sneaky. It's sneaky. Any way we identify ourselves outside of who has created us will seek to lift us higher. So if we identify ourselves with that trauma or by that trauma or by that event or by that bad thing, we begin to seek to lift ourselves higher instead of the one who created us. Having a proper knowledge of who we are and who created us will will cause us to look up and out instead of down and inward. Trauma and pain and suffering can keep you captive. It's a lie because hardship and trauma should not define us. Skin color and politics should not define you. Sickness or health concerns should not define you. Because when those things define you, you begin to force others to acquiesce to those things instead of to the Almighty God who made you. This is not to say it's a tough battle. This is not to say you should not seek help. It is a tough battle and you should seek help. I did, eventually. What I am saying is that, once again, the most helpful thing for me is my faith in Jesus Christ and His Word, the Bible. Finding and being part of a church family and being around people who can speak hard truth to you in love is important. People who challenge your feelings and emotions are important. Our feelings and emotions change often. They are not reliable and they are not truth. They are definitely given to us by God and can be a gift, but they cannot control us or define truth, or provide our identity. If our identity is found in anything other than being made in the image of God, it becomes about us. There is freedom in knowing it is not about me, but about Him. Here are some passages about who we are, who Christ is, what He has and continues to do for us, and what feelings, emotions, and acts we are called to. The first one is out of Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, nothing that is in my flesh for the willingness present in me is present in me but the doing of the good is not i want to do good but i cannot do good hebrews 4:14 4, to 16 since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus can sympathize with what we are going through. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And then Galatians 5.22-24, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Listen, if you're struggling with any of this, kick up the dust to get out of it. Get the help you need, talk to someone, and most importantly, open the Bible and see what your Creator has done for you.